0: Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit prweek.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. I'm your guest host for this week. You might have noticed I don't have an English accent, and I'm Frank Washcook, PR Week's executive editor, and I have a great guest co-host and a great guest for you this week. So first, let me introduce Diana Bradley, who is PR Week's associate news editor. Diana, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And we have a terrific guest for you this week. It is Alex Conant. He is the founding partner at Firehouse Strategies in Washington, D.C. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Great to have you. A lot to talk about, but let's start with the big news from your firm recently, inking a big funding deal with three financial institutions. So Alex, what was the thinking? What was the strategy behind that?
2: Thanks, Frank. Yeah. So when we started the firm in 2016, the partners and I, uh, we had a kind of a goal of being the best public affairs firm in Washington, D.C. And frankly, I think we achieved that faster than we then any of us anticipated, but we really feel like we're at the point now when we, after we turn five years old, that we are the best public affairs firm in DC, and we're managing reputational campaigns and advocacy campaigns for some of the biggest brands, some of the biggest business coalitions, some of the biggest trade in the country. And so we, when we started to look at, well, what do we do, want to do for our next five years? We really want to become the best public affairs firm in the country. And we realized that to do that, it's gonna require additional resources that frankly, the partners just don't have at our personal disposal uh, in in terms of acquisitions, bringing in new talent, being able to provide new services. So we partnered with some really great uh, investment financial partners, including led by Semperfi Partners. And last month announced that they are making a a major minority investment in the firm. So the other founding partner, Terry Sullivan and I, continue to be the majority owners of the firm. So nothing will change on a day-to-day basis. Our clients aren't going to experience any sort of change in terms of the day-to-day stuff other than over the long term, I think we'll be able to provide even more services and more resources to win their advocacy campaigns. So when you say more resources,
1: uh, what, what's in the works? Are you planning to grow out regionally? Are you planning to establish more offices in different places? I know you started two more offices, I think, earlier this year. What, what, what's in the works?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. Earlier this year, we opened offices in New York and Florida. Those are two obviously very important states in national, Democratic, and Republican politics. Uh, but we want to, we don't want to just stop at those two states. But when we started looking at other states that we could add to our offerings, uh, it became pretty clear that acquisitions made a lot of sense. So we're, we are already talking to other firms uh, about joining the firehouse team there's a lot of interest and a lot of excitement. We work with a lot of firms in some of these small states. So to the extent that we can, we can make that partnership more enduring, I think there's some excitement there. But yeah, we wanna have a footprint in more states. Over the last year, we've done work in 46 states, but to, but to really invest in that, I think makes a lot of sense for us long-term. We also wanna have more offerings and that could include data and analytics or polling. Uh, we don't do any in-house creative at the time, so I think that's something that we'll, we'll certainly be looking at as well. I think just when you look at the full public affairs offerings, right now we manage a lot of campaigns, we do a lot of the public relations and grassroots work in-house, but I think there's a lot more things that a firm of our size as we look to growth opportunities, there's a lot more things that we can we can bring in-house to provide even better services for our clients.
1: Now, when we talk about other states outside of D.C. and, and outside, well, D.C. is not a state, of course, I know that, but... Uh, you know, outside of uh, Florida and New York and D.C., are we uh, are you talking about working in state capitals for the most part uh, or, or is it a lot broader than that?
2: I, I mean, it, it's, it is state capitals for the most part. It's also big cities. But uh, I mean, we've done a lot of work in L.A. We've done work in Chicago. Uh, but look, I think as you look at the political environment in 2023 and beyond, a lot of the big fights are going to continue to play out at the state in the state legislatures. Um, and that's, I think, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as we see gridlock in Washington, the fights tend to trickle down to the states, um, and then vice versa. I think you'll see you'll see a lot of governors, for you know, for example, in Florida and Texas and potentially California, who are looking at running for president and are trying to pass activist legislation in those states. I think there's just a lot of fights, a lot of political activity in those states. Um, We've seen in our own business, we, we and as I said in the last year, we've done work in 46 states. We are seeing more and more work at the state legislative level and at the municipal level. And so that's definitely something we want to invest in in, in the future.
1: What about the other offerings? I mean, you mentioned creative, you mentioned data, and uh, you know, look, these are really rapidly growing spaces within PR, a lot of firms investing there. What do you really want to get when you're acquiring a firm or you're acquiring services, whether that's any of the things you mentioned? I mean, are you are you looking to tie it to your public affairs work in a certain way? Is there something very specific you're looking at?
2: Well, look, I
0: mean,
2: there's a couple of ways to answer that question. The first is just in terms of what what do our clients expect? What how can we help our clients the best? And I think for a lot of our clients that there is a paid media component that might make sense mm-hmm. for some of their campaigns. That's not something that we currently do in-house. Uh, frankly, you know, we think that the authentic communications, whether it be earned media or grassroots activism, is far more effective. But there are times when it certainly makes a lot of sense to have a paid media component. And I think that's something that we would like to be able to offer and and that's something that would probably make the most sense to acquire another firm uh, uh, to partner. And right now we partner with a lot of firms on that. So when we manage these campaigns that do have massive paid media budgets, you know we we clearly work with a lot of creative firms. But that's something that I think we certainly would want to look at um, as we as we move forward. And then second, in terms of like mergers and acquisitions, I think anybody listening to this would would agree that the most important thing is that it's a good cultural fit. And we're really proud of the culture that we've built at Firehouse. I think that's something that really impressed the investors. We've got great employee recruitment or excuse me, employee retention. We have a lot of fun. You know, we just we want this to be a place that people want to come to work. And part of that is liking the people that you work with. And so when we look at people that you know we might acquire or merge with Certainly, you know cultural or cultural fit—somebody that understands how we do things at Firehouse, understands the premium we put on winning campaigns—that's going to be a really important box to check.
1: Yeah, I can't agree with you enough on that. I mean, you, you sometimes you hear the occasional nightmare story about, uh, you know, just just a, a combination being a bad cultural fit, and of course, you hear a lot of good stories too about firms that have a, a terrific culture that people want to work at, which has been really valuable. Over the past two years, amid the great resignation, so uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you enough on that. Can you tell us a little bit about some work you've done on behalf of of clients recently? Any any really exciting campaigns for you and your team?
2: I mean, a small one that we point to a lot. Uh, last year, we, we started the Community Gyms Coalition. Um, as, when the pandemic hit, you know, gyms is a sector of the economy as just a group of businesses that traditionally have not had much of a federal uh, advocacy presence just because c- they haven't needed it in contrast to say the restaurants or the airlines. So then when Congress started, uh, helping impacted in- industries, the restaurants and the airlines got a lot of support, uh, but gyms were really left behind. And so we worked with all the big gym brands in the country to, to, cr- to create the community gyms coalition, which was really the first federal advocacy of its time on behalf of, of gym owners, big and small around, around the country really enjoyed working with the gym owners, their stories during the pandemic, when, you know, their businesses were closed and their revenues were were basically zero or, or extremely low, uh, were really heartbreaking. And so I really enjoyed working with them, helping them, um, organize a coalition that, you know, ultimately, uh, I think has really increased their profile inside the beltway and, and in Congress and their, their bill in the house had well over 150 bipartisan, uh, co-sponsors, which, um, but you know, which is really a testament for an industry that just a year and a half ago had very little national national standing. Um, yeah, that's but, terrific. Yeah. So, you know, that that's one example. But Look, we work across the economy. We do a lot of work with tech. We do work in retail. We do work in healthcare. We do work in financial services. Uh, you, I think we represent a good portion of the Fortune 50, um, either directly or through their trade associations which is exciting for me as somebody who comes came from the political arena where I was used to working for just one politician at a time. Now I'm really working for, at times, you know, I feel like the entire economy, uh, our, our firm covers in, in some aspect. Yeah. And I want to talk a little
1: bit more about that because you you guys founded the firm in 2016, which of course was an election year. I mean, what um, what made you decide you had enough of the campaign trail, so to speak? I mean, what, what made you... Uh, say, look, we want to set up our own shop and we want to move away from doing campaign politics?
2: Well, both Terry and I had done it for a long time. Terry and I both worked in, in politics for about 15 or 20 years. Um, we got beat by Donald Trump, which is a sobering, <laughs> sobering moment for anybody. Um, and, but we really wanted to take the lessons that we had learned working at the highest levels of campaigns and government and bring that to the, to the public affairs sector where I think a lot of the tactics that were effective 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even just aren't as effective now. And we know that because when we worked in the Senate, we were on the receiving end of a bunch of those campaigns. And so we know what it actually takes to move policymakers. And that's, that's sort of how we started the firm. It's like, if we're going to actually, if we were going to persuade a policymaker, what's the best, what's the most efficient and effective way to do it. And that's what we would go and do. And as I said at the outset, like we've had a lot of success, over the last five years, we've been very good about reinvesting in the firm at every chance, building a culture here that we're really proud of. And so, I think when the investors came around, it was really a validation of what we built in terms of the the our successful business model, our success on behalf of clients. Obviously, they did, as part of the due diligence, they spoke to a lot of our clients, and they were really impressed with uh, our client satisfaction. In fact, our clients' enthusiasm for the firm and their commitment to continuing to grow with us. So it's it. it <laughs> we, we, to, to answer your question most directly, you know, I think we worked in politics for a long time. This is just as exciting as anything I've done in politics, building this firm and, and really working on some of the biggest advocacy campaigns in the country.
1: You mentioned some of these newer tactics that maybe people aren't, uh, newer strategies, newer tactics that maybe people aren't prepared for. Uh, what, What are some of them? I mean, if you want to talk about politics in 2022, heading towards midterms, or even just political influence campaigns, I mean, what are some of those new tactics that really are surprising people?
2: I mean, the key is authenticity. You know, I think, and that was one of the lessons, I think, from 2016, and frankly, from 2020, is... I think voters are sophisticated. I think policymakers are even more sophisticated in terms of being able to smell out BS arguments and and AstroTurf and fake, uh, fake campaigns. And so really the key to everything that we do is it has to be authentic. So it's finding, salient messages, but then marrying them up with authentic communicators, authentic messengers, and making sure that you're deliver you're, you're connecting that directly with the people you're trying to persuade. And so as a result, that's, that's frankly why we don't do a lot of paid communications. I think paid communications, paid media has a role in terms of supporting a campaign, but I think any, any campaign that's relying solely on paid advertising, frankly, is, is going to falter because the, the, policymakers are, are too sophisticated to just see a TV ad and turn around and and, and either believe what the ad is saying or be or, or simply being persuaded by the TV ads I think what what people depend on a lot more for how they make decisions is what their friends say what their inner circle says what their advisors say what what other people that they know and trust are saying and so those are the people that we've spend a lot of time uh, trying to um, trying to persuade
1: there's an interesting case study here I want to get your uh, opinion on and part of this is me selfishly being from Pennsylvania, but uh, John Fetterman's social media team has been getting a lot of attention recently, and there was this great headline in the, the I think it was the Daily Beast about you know can John Fetterman shitpost post his way to uh, a Senate seat? It, it, does this stuff work? Does it matter? Um, I, I, I think with him, authenticity is is, is a big thing, and it, it seems mm-hmm. to be working for him in that way, but. You know, these social media stunts, for lack of a better term, do they really, do they win voters? Do they have an impact beyond fundraising?
2: I mean, I guess we'll, in Pennsylvania, I guess we'll find out. It's such a such a bizarre race up there, given the, um, you know, just given the two candidates and how different they are and the challenges they face. I think the sort of the P, the stunts, as you call them they can help candidates break through. And as one thing that, you know, we learned in 2016 one thing that we learned every day right now in our public affairs campaigns is it's really, really hard to break through. And so mm-hmm. I think one way to do it is kind of lighting yourself on fire for lack of a better term. Um, but you have to do it in an authentic way, right? If you're, if you're being, if you're being phony, it's, um, it's just, it's not going to play with voters. And so I think you need to figure out ways to break through in in authentic ways in order to be successful in today's media environment
1: makes sense makes sense so we have a lot of young readers who have worked on campaigns or might be working on campaigns right now who are thinking about when they might go into the corporate world or when they might go into the agency world you know when they're done on the campaign trailer on the hill what are the things that they need to know when they do that and what do you wish you knew when you were moving over
2: well, I think from a public relations perspective, like if you're in the media relations business, what I tell every young person I work with: the key word in media relations is relationships. And uh, and so I'm very proud of my own personal relationships with the media. You know, I spent 15 years working with local reporters, um, and I feel like I've got a good relationship with virtually every reporter I've ever worked with. Now, that doesn't mean every story I worked at I worked on was I was happy about. Far from it but i I, w- I was taught and something i try to I teach others is, is it's, it's rarely worth you know burning bridges with reporters or icing out reporters because um, we're in the relationship business and so what you need to do as a young pr professional is build those relationships maintain those relationships and then when you decide it is time to move to the to the private sector or the non-political sector uh take those relationships with you and and they'll be they'll be invaluable i still talk on a daily basis with political reporters that I worked with when I was working on campaigns, but I still talk to them because they're now covering Congress, where my clients have legislation coming up on the floor or are being debated uh, on the, on the Hill. So, so I think I think just really putting an onus on building those those media relationships. And then the second thing I'd say is just you know, building out your own personal network. We're able to work across the entire economy in part because Terry and I working on the hill, got to know a lot of people. And so when we were starting the firm, that was very helpful to know so many people in so many different parts of the economy that worked in people that worked in all and dozens of different companies just when we were getting started. Now, of course, you know, clients come to us based on the firm's reputation and, and the team that we've built here. But in those early days, clearly our own personal network was very helpful.
1: All right. Hoping you can take our listeners a little bit behind the scenes here Washington, D.C., what is everybody buzzing about right now that might surprise people?
2: You know, the, I think the thing that people are buzzing about right now is how much Congress is getting done. Uh, just 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 this week, the Senate uh, passed the CHIPS Act, uh, something that died several times before it passed and is, is a big win, I think, for the Biden administration, a big win for um, uh, chip manufacturers in the U.S., um, and a big win for... Um, a lot of senators who, who worked on that for a long time, and now you know they're going straight from that to potentially doing a reconciliation deal, uh, some version of Build Back Better, which will have um, uh, the, the biggest uh, drug pricing legislation that they've done in decades. Um, so I think you know while the country clearly is very frustrated about the direction of the country and uh, Biden's poll numbers really couldn't get any worse, the there's actually a lot happening here in Washington, D.C., which is part of why me and my colleagues have been extremely busy the last couple of weeks, um, given, all the, given all the congressional activity. I think long term, you know, everyone I talk to thinks the Senate, the U.S. Senate is a complete coin flip. Republicans should win the majority, but a lot of these races are just being pretty slow to develop. Um, there's questions about some of the Republican candidates. Frankly, there's questions about some of the Democratic candidates. You mentioned Pennsylvania. Uh, And so it's just a lot of for for the election only being a couple months away, there's still a lot of unknowns. And I think it's anyone's guess who's going to control the Senate after the midterm. So that's also on top of top of everyone's mind.
1: Um, If you and you mentioned Biden's poll numbers, Uh, if you were in a position to give him communications advice, what would it be? What could help him out?
2: Well, I would start with the premise that it's not a communications problem. I saw, I read reports Mm -hmm. that they're going to have a shakeup in the White House communications office. Which um, I understand the impulse to do that, but he doesn't have his his problem is not poor communications. His problem is five dollars a gallon gas and record inflation. Um, And if he wants to improve his poll numbers, he's got to bring the price of gas down. He's got to get inflation under control. Otherwise, I don't care how good of a communicator you are, it's going to be um, a challenge. That said, part of the reason his numbers are so soft is because he's underperforming with Democrats. I think he's underperforming with Democrats for two primary reasons. One is there are real questions about his age, and I think the White House has to figure out ways to put those questions to bed. I don't, I don't. Since I'm not inside the tent there, I have no idea of the best way to do that. Um, but they can't continue to let. Democrats, not just Republicans, but Democrats, think that he might be too old to be president. They need to sh- they need to find a way to show that he is he, he is he, he's he's up up for the job. Um, and then the, the second thing I think they need to do, just for their own base, and I say this as a Republican, hoping <laughs> glad that he has not done this to date, but he needs to do a better job of uh of of driving conflict with conservative Republicans, especially Donald Trump. I think the best way to get Democrats energized is to show Biden sticking it to Trump and other right wing conservatives or very conservative or or conservative Republicans. It's not in Biden's nature, which I respect a lot. um, And I think it's part of why he won uh, was because he he promised to turn the the temperature down. But that's what his base wants. And so if the goal is simply to get his poll numbers from 35 percent to 40 percent or 42 percent, I think some more fights with Republicans would probably help him out.
1: Now, you know, I couldn't pass up this opportunity to ask you about this because you're you're very well connected in Florida Republican politics. So, uh, you know, they're are two very prominent Floridians in the, the GOP who are looking at 2024. What do you make of this? Uh, is is Trump still the solid front runner for the Republican nomination? Or is DeSantis really cut into that right now? Uh, or, or is it just too early to tell?
2: I've worked on a lot of presidential campaigns and I, I can tell you, it's way too early to tell, you know, the, uh, the nominee, whoever the front, the, you don't want to be the front runner right now. If you're the front runner right now, if you're the front runner six months from now, that just means you're going to have every candidate and the national media targeting you every day until the Iowa caucuses and in the New Hampshire primary. So I, I, look, I think Trump enters the race as the as, as the clear front runner. Simply given his name ID, simply given his ability to raise money, his ability to command media attention, and and according to polls, his support with rank and file Republican primary voters right now. That said, it's a long process. I think it's going to be a much harder campaign for him this time around than it was in 2016. Uh, for, for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that he's not going to catch anyone by surprise this time around. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he's going to have a lot of challengers, including in all likelihood, the, the, as you mentioned, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who has shown real political skill over the last two years, who has done an incredible job of raising his name ID as a governor, which is not an easy thing to do, but raising his name ID with Republicans around the country. If you look at the poll numbers, there's a lot of interest and excitement in, in the governor of Florida. Uh, and he's and he's shown a capacity to raise a ton of money. So I think he, if he runs, and I assume he does, if he runs, he, there's no doubt in my mind he'll be formidable. But I think anyone who would make a prediction on who the nominee is going to be just hasn't, hasn't really been paying attention to how unpredictable American politics is these years. Fair enough, too early to tell. Okay,
1: Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast again. I'm really glad we could have you on. I am going to turn things over to Diana Bradley, who is going to walk us through some of the biggest communications news of the past week. And Alex, please feel free to uh to add your insight to any of this. But Diana, let's start with Instagram, because this is this is a really interesting thing that happened this week, and that um two of the Kardashians want Instagram to go back to being, let's, you know, more traditional Instagram, photo-based Instagram and less, uh, looking less like TikTok.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, so what happened there and and how did Instagram respond?
0: So Kylie Jenner and Kim Kardashian, uh, criticized Instagram's shift from photo to video on Monday, uh, calling it an attempt to copy TikTok and um, since then, nearly 200,000 people as of Wednesday have signed a petition to make Instagram Instagram again, uh, calling for the platform to stay focused on photos and use less algorithm-driven videos. In response, Instagram CEO Adam Mosseri posted a video on Twitter on Tuesday saying that interaction with videos is increasing on the platform regardless of the changes it makes and that it's leaning into what users already consume. Mossery conceded that Instagram is testing full screen feeds for photo and video with a small percentage of users and said the platform's trying to improve the accuracy of its recommendations, which are posts that Instagram's algorithm predicts users will engage with, even though they don't follow that account.
1: Yeah, and so the elephant in the room here is sort of that um- – uh, uh one of the you could tell I'm not a reality tv person one of the kardashians <laughs> a couple of years ago uh made comments about snapchat and and uh how they weren't going to use snapchat anymore and the it the stock price just just tanked i remember um mm-hmm. and that's and that's the thing i'm sure that was on the ceo of instagram's mind when when he was deciding how to respond to this um alex interested interested to get your two cents on this because a lot of really smart communications execs are, are talking about TikTok and specifically talking uh, about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, a lawsuit and and just just all of the influence this had on public opinion. Uh, you have any you have anything about TikTok that you want to um, to add?
2: Well, I can just tell you from the DC perspective, uh, I mean, TikTok is going to have a rough couple of years up ahead of it, especially if the Republicans take the House and the Senate. I think there's a lot of focus on China. TikTok's ties to China are going to be an issue. Um, you know, I think clearly, you know, Facebook and some of the other tech companies uh, would be happy to see TikTok uh, have have his time in the barrel on the Hill. Um, yeah. So I think I think that TikTok is going to have some challenges. On the, on the Instagram and Facebook thing, to me, it's a reminder that Look, yep. people don't like change and I've just noticed I, I use Instagram like I think most Americans and I've noticed my own my own feed changing. Um, and so I thought I thought Maseri's, uh post explaining the changes um, was good. like it's one thing to make change it's one thing to make change without letting people know. So I think you know the mm-hmm. more that the Facebook can over communicate as it makes its changes, uh, the, the, that's a smart strategy.
1: Yeah, I, I'm getting suggested a lot of cat videos recently on Instagram, which I mean, might, might tell everybody and Instagram a bit too much about me. Um, so, that you know, occasionally you assign a story and then you're surprised with um, with the analysis that a reporter comes back with. And this was the case with me uh, assigning our, our exceptional contributor, Chris Daniels, uh, a story about the NIL market, uh, which is name, image and likeness for college athletes. Uh, which is is now legal, and college athletes are making a lot of money from. But it, it was it was interesting in that it was kind of a mixed bag for PR agencies, right, Diana?
0: Right. Um, so, college athletes collectively scored nine hundred seventeen million dollars in the first year they were able to profit from their NIL without losing eligibility. Um, and the NIL market could grow to $1.1 billion in fiscal year two, which started on July 1st, according to data from Open Doors, which is a technology solution provider in the arena. So um, we talked to various PR firms to get case studies on how NIL campaigns did. Some firms are finding success helping college athletes earn money from their names, images, and likenesses. Um, Michael Brown, EVP for sports at United Entertainment Group which, like Edelman, is owned by DJE Holdings, told us that the NIL ruling essentially expanded the pool of influencers that brands can partner with by 40,000 overnight. And UEG executed test cases with clients such as Subway. Um, Edelman was one of the first out of the gate with uh, Unilever on a program for degree deodorant called Breaking Limits. Um, and, And they saw success, but for some agencies there hasn't been as much work around NIL as they initially might have predicted, at least not yet. Um, So Chris Consol, EVP and sports lead for North America at BCW, said that clients by and large are still figuring out the potential opportunity. Uh, Megan Garner, VP at Ketchum Sports, said that the interest in NIL has flattened or changed as process and impact continue to be ironed out. And concern has uh, been rising that so-called NIL collectives are disguising illegal pay-for-play deals with NIL payments. So, um, Sean Clare, a VP at 160 over 90, said that brands need to keep their heads up on this issue.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and it's been interesting watching this market develop. Yeah. Uh, so, something we are going to keep our eyes on uh, as it becomes, as it matures. Uh, Speaking of surprises, Friday afternoon, 2 p.m., one of the best-known communications executives out there, Jay Carney, former President Barack Obama's one-time press secretary, is moving to Airbnb from Amazon.
0: Yeah, these big moves always happen at the end of the day on Friday, so... um, Especially
1: when you have summer Fridays, it's it's, (laughs) without a doubt they're going to happen at that time.
0: Absolutely. So, um, Amazon SVP of Global Corporate Affairs and former White House Press Secretary Jay Carney is joining Airbnb as its global head of policy and communications in September. Uh, Based in Washington, D.C., he will report to Airbnb co-founder and CEO Brian Chesky and serve as a member of the company's leadership team. And with his upcoming exit, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy is on the hunt for a new senior policy executive to set Amazon's objectives on antitrust, labor, and transportation issues – following a string of high-profile public policy setbacks. But unlike Carney, the new executive will not also oversee Amazon communications team uh, based on a report from the information. so um, Yeah,
1: that was, that was good insight from the information about what is going on behind the scenes uh, with this role and how it's going to be split in the future. And that gives you a, a good indication about how the CEO was unhappy or How he felt about, um, you know, the way communications and other departments were functioning there. So really interesting stuff there and another opening and another move we will be watching. Diana, if you would tell us a little bit about Macy's external communications reorganization for their parent company, Macy's Incorporated.
0: Sure. Macy's Incorporated, which is the holding company that includes Macy's, Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury, has consolidated its national and regional external communications teams into one unit so, Macy's SVP and head corporate comms, Bobby Amir Shahi, brought on Ka Yi as VP of corporate communications in March to lead the combined external team. So, she will manage Macy's Incorporated's brand and reputation, oversee all consumer comms for Macy's, um, and she previously served as SVP and consumer tech lead at Edelman. So, there, there was right. a... A lot of changes there. They've also um, made a bunch of hires since March. So, um, yeah, we have all of the details in our story about that. And speaking
1: of all of the details, tell us a little bit more about the expansion of Edelman's Edelman Smithfield uh, organization.
0: Sure. So Edelman has taken its financial communications boutique, Edelman Smithfield Global, the global expansion brings together Edelman's financial comms and financial services teams under the Edelman Smithfield brand. And just for a little bit of background, Edelman acquired the then London-based agency in 2015, which will operate in the US, EMA and APAC. And it had been rolled out in Germany, the Middle East and Canada prior to this week. Lex Suvanto, previously managing partner in Uh, CEO of Edelman Financial Communications, will serve as Edelman Smithfield's global CEO.
1: All right. So congrats to Lex on that and uh, to Edelman on the expansion. Uh, So that's about all the time we have for this week's podcast. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Diana, thank you for co-hosting. I just have one public service announcement before we sign off. And that's that it's that time of year again. You can enter the PR Week Awards 2023. Hard to believe we're already saying that, but they are open for entries right now. So you can do that and you can get the details on PRWeekUS.com. Alex, thanks again for joining us. Diana, thanks for co-hosting. And we will see you next time on the PR Week.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.